Leslie Scholl, and welcome to the Let's All Flourish podcast, where we are everyday, relatable people talking about optimal wellness and discovering ways to help families, kids, and young adults discover their version of optimal wellness through lifestyle, movement, attitude, and nutrition choices that will allow children to engage and focus better at school, parents to feel better about themselves at work and at home, and the family unit to thrive in the community as a whole. Joining us on the podcast today is Christine Fonseca, a licensed educational psychologist, critically acclaimed author, and nationally recognized speaker on topics related to educational psychology, mental health, giftedness, and using storytelling to heal past wounds. Using her experience consulting and coaching educators and parents, Christine brings her expertise to psychology today authoring the parenting blog, Parenting for a New Generation. She has written self-help articles for Parents.com, Johnson & Johnson, and Justine Magazine. Her appearance on the popular gifted educational podcast, Mind Matters, was one of its most downloaded episodes. Christine's critically acclaimed titles include Emotional Intensity in Gifted Students, Raising the Shy Child, Letting Go, A Girl's Guide to Breaking Free of Stress and Anxiety, and the action-packed young adult series, The Solomon Experiments. Christine lives in Southern California with her husband and children, and I am so glad to have her with us here today. We would like to thank Let's All Flourish for sponsoring our episode today. Let's All Flourish is a health and wellness company impacting wellness for families around the world. Let's All Flourish provides workshops and lectures on lifestyle, exercise, attitude, and nutrition to corporate and private clients. Do you want to schedule a workplace wellness workshop? Call us or email us at letsallflourish at gmail.com. The phone number, 916-508-9174. In the spirit of flourishing, I'd like to give a shout out to a great new locally owned wine bar in Roseville. Platinum Wine Lounge is currently open for business and on its great patio as well as online for takeout or delivery, featuring an amazing selection of over 60 great wines. 60 great wines, and I know who is picking those wines, so these are amazing. Locally crafted beer and a great food menu. I have also tasted the food here. You guys, you really want to stop by. Open now at 9050 Fairway Drive in Roseville or online at PlatinumWineLounge.com. You can also follow them on Instagram and Facebook at Platinum Wine. Cheers! What's up for today is flat out the topic of disappointment. I have always thought of disappointment as uniquely individual until, let's face it, the last five months when it became collectively a shared worldwide experience. We have high school seniors in Chicago that were sharing the same loss of prom memories as those in San Diego, and also promotions or graduations that weren't happening for graduates at the universities in Romania 
And those were being missed just as deeply as those from graduates in Iceland. The disappointments occurring around the world are real and they are similar and yet they're unique. I remember back to when my kids were young and they would get upset about something, even now. It doesn't even have to be when they were young, but they would get upset about something and you try and put yourself in their shoes and you remember how much emphasis and empathy you want to offer them because even if something's not a big deal to you in your mind, it might be a big deal to them. And it was this teaching moment for empathy, but then you also wanted to be able to put it in perspective for them. So then there was all these layers that you were wanting to make sure that they could get back up from their disappointment, you know, and make sure that they could function, but yet you wanted to be able to offer them the hug and make sure that this episode was not going to define them, you know, reframe it and learn from it and learn how to show others empathy as they move forward, as they experience other disappointments in, in their futures. So all these things are kind of swirling around in my mind lately but it's all just so big, right? Like all these disappointments feel so heavy on our shoulders. And we are all smack in the middle of this disappointing situation trying to do the best that we can. Our promoting graduating classes have mustered through, I feel like as I look around, so well. And I feel like the world is mustered through with them. I mean, We've got we've had LeBron James and we've had the Obamas and the cast of Schitt's Creek has been sending them messages like on worldwide TV shows, which has just been fantastic. The world is cheering on the class of 2020. And I believe rightfully so. Graduations are just one of the few huge milestones that only happen a few times in our lives along with weddings and births and funerals and the birthdays, all of the events that were experienced differently this year. You look around and you see kids and people, humans, picking up and they're flourishing the best that they can. But then I wonder, are we seeing it all? So I wanted to bring someone in who can help us identify not only in ourselves, but also look at our kids and look at our community for warning signs of disappointment fatigue is kind of how I'm wondering about it in my own head. How can we collectively muster this whole situation and avoid falling into self-pity or anxiety or depression because guess what? None of this is personal. And if there has ever been a time when we were all in this together, it would be right now. We are definitely all in this together. Welcome, Christine. I'm so glad you're here with us today in studio. And we are going to launch right in and start talking about disappointment, which it sounds crazy that I sound so happy to talk about disappointment. (laughs) But but that's where we're going to go with that. So Let's talk about disappointment in your life and any disappointments that you might have experienced, like a big one that comes to your mind. Sure. 
as you've already mentioned, I am a writer, uh, first and foremost, and consider myself an artist. And like any artist, um, writers in particular, since that's what I'm most familiar with, disappointment comes along with the territory. So I can remember writing my first novel back in 2007, 2008, somewhere in there. And um, I was super naive about the publishing industry, and I really didn't know... Um, how to get something published, but I was pretty convinced I would be the next JK Rowling. And I'm not prone to like ridiculous flights of fancy, but I was pretty convinced that that was going to be my future. And um, I quickly found out that, yeah, it didn't work that way, especially then <laughs> writing or self-publishing wasn't as big as it is now. And there are a lot of gatekeepers you need to go through. And uh -huh. so I remember, um, First and foremost, I met some other writer friends um, because I the only people who had read my novel were friends of mine from work or friends of mine at home. And while they are honest, they're not like other writers. And so first I had to learn all about that and edit and all of that. And I figured all that part out. But then I went out to find an agent, which at that time was really the only good way that I could guarantee distribution of the book. Got it. Um, it was to publish through a traditional publisher. And for that, you need agents. And I can remember burning through probably three or 400 queries or letters to agents trying to get representation before I got even a nibble. Wow. And this didn't happen just once. This happened multiple times. And it's really difficult in that situation not to believe that you're just junkie at doing it. Like Why? you are a hack with no talent. Right. Um, and then I remember once I had, you know, I, I got an agent for my nonfiction work, never did secure one for my fiction work. Um, but I remember, you know, at that time as, as the birth of kind of self-publishing was really coming online and on scene and, and, and smaller publishing houses were willing to take unagented work. I can remember getting close, getting to the editorial meeting getting to the kind of the cutting room floor, so to speak, and having and losing out on having things um, either picked up for publication or picked up for um, a film. I came super close on a couple of books, but I've never crossed the finish line the way I've wanted to with my fiction. And over time of trying, trying, trying with different products, um, I, you start to give up. I'll be really <sighs> honest. It drains your creative energy. And it's taken me several years to really kind of take a look at that, look at it objectively, figure out what I want to do next. Um, I'm a person with a lot of grit um, normally. And so that was, that was new for me. And that's just one. I mean, there's all kinds of disappointments that I've had um, in my life as anybody has. Nobody really gets, you know, I'm half a century old. Nobody gets to that point without having faced lots of disappointment and lots of having kind of being forced to look at disappointment from different kinds of lenses just to make it through the next day and not give up on some dream that you have. Right. And that's almost an illustration too of something that's like sapping your energy from not your strength point, right? Like your strength yeah. is the writing point and that's like eating at it because it, it requires you to do something that that's not what you want to spend your time doing. Absolutely. You want and to be it, it just gets in the way of the creative process. But right. you know, through it, there, there are gems through it. You know, you've, you've, you've kind of mentioned uh, in your opening this idea that there is this collective disappointment that's common in human experience, whether it's common in human experience because we're all going through the same thing as we yeah. are right now, or whether it's common in human experience because nobody gets through stages of their life without going through it. Right. It's just it's the, one of the most fundamental common things about what it means to be human. 
And there's the downside, which is the feeling side of it and the grief side of it and the processing side of it. Um, and then there's some, some positive things that can come out of it too. And, and that just kind of reminds me of the importance of mindset through all of it. Right. The mindset. Uh, I love that. Like the mindset of like, how do you weather through? And that's part of what I'm thinking about with like kids and all of us is like, where's our mindset to weather us through with this fatigue of that I'm wondering about. So how, and you are also a child psychologist that's working with children and disappointment. So, well, first going back a little bit, how did you pick yourself up from, from that disappointment? I mean, if you, how did, yeah, like, yeah, (laughs) three to 400 queries for agents. Like I could imagine getting the first five or 10, but like when you get to like a hundred or 200 or 300, Christine, how were you? A couple of things keep me going. Yeah. Examples of others who've gone through worse and made it far. So that idea of the example of others, you know, if you look at uh, James Patterson, we all know him. Yeah author, right? He had right. over 300 uh, rejections on his first book. Uh-huh. Um, if you look at J.K. Rowling, she went through hundreds of rejections before anybody bothered to pick up Harry right. Potter. And she, she was literally at her last. She was at the end right. uh, before somebody picked it up. So it's that idea, that optimism. So uh, not alone. Get me through it. It's also recognizing that a rejection from an agent or from a publisher on my work is not an indictment on me as an artist. So it's not about me as a human. Right. Um, it's not about me personally. Not it's taking about it personally. That particular piece of work, not either not being presented in a way that they understood its value or just not fitting what they were looking for at the time. And it's really kind of understanding that all of that is, is really part of what it means to have an optimistic mindset. So I, I'm kind of a natural born optimist. It wasn't something I had to learn to cultivate. Um, so I, I, I bend that way quite naturally. And so it was really employing some of those things that make optimism, that understanding that things are temporal, they're not permanent, that understanding that it's not personal, um, that, that belief in a growth mindset, that if this is about my craft, that is something I can improve. If this is about the kinds of stories I write, that is something I can change. Like these are all things that I have some measure of control over. And and looking at it from that lens, and then and then really getting down to the nitty gritty of why do I define myself as an artist or a writer to begin with? What's the role of an artist within a culture, and is that who you are? And then deciding what does that mean in terms of publication? Right. You know, do I have to publish something to actually fulfill that role, or is it enough just to have written it? And, and making some decisions around that. I had success, easy success, relatively speaking, early on with nonfiction. And so that's been kind of my life's blood over the last decade in terms of the the type of writing I've done is a whole lot of nonfiction. And for a while that bothered me because my soul song is more around stories. Ah. Uh, And and for a while that was, those were competing and that was separate. And I had to learn that, no, they're just two sides of the same coin. It's just the same skill. You're just this is speaking to people. So what is it about this thing that's speaking to people that isn't speaking to people in, with regards to your novels? And how do you bring more of that into your novels? 
And it's, it's taken, I, I can't lie, it's been effort to try to figure out that and what that means for me and, yeah. and what does it mean for me going forward. And it's, it's taken having to adjust some of my thinking, which I can get, I'll admit, I can get a little rigid on my thinking and think I'm right sometimes. And so <laughs> it was about having to adjust that and, and really recognize when that was happening and when that was true. But what was important about the disappointment is I philosophically believe that disappointment is the product of expectations versus reality. That's yes. really all it is. Yeah. And if we can remember to live around the truth of our situation, good or bad, right or wrong, whether we're privileged or not, like what's the truth of our current situation? And then what do we have control over if it's not a truth we accept, want to accept? Right. We need something to change in that truth. What, where do we have control? Where do we not have control? And where can our mindset help us out to increase our sphere of control? So, yeah, that's kind of, that's what I do. Yes. And that's what I teach others to do. So you mentioned a whole lot there that I, that I've just <laughs> written down and that I love. So keeping an optimistic mindset that you kind of had already looking to examples of others, knowing that you're not alone and then not taking things personally those are all things that you want to try and set yourself up for. Fantastic. That optimistic mindset. Okay. So let's say you're in a situation because I have optimism also, sometimes it's harder to find than other times, obviously. Sure. Now is a great example of that. <laughs> right. Like it's, yeah, it's sometimes, and some people just are not, glass half full kind of people. Uh, but hold on. Like, I, I agree with that in terms of you're kind of bent one way or the other, like early on. Yeah. Those are, those are not fixed by any stretch. They're not personality traits. Optimism and pessimism are not actual personality traits. They're okay. not part of your hardwiring. Okay. These are learned skills. Okay. And so if you're a glass half empty, kind of your first go-to is kind of that victim mentality. That seems like a harsh way to say it, but that's kind of what it is. Like okay. I'm a victim of my circumstances. I'm a victim to the world, whatever, whatever, whatever. I do think there's a way to shift that. I, I'm not going to lie and say that that's an easy shift, especially if you have a habit of looking at things as the glass is half empty. A habit. You know, okay. As opposed to, if it's a habit, if it's ingrained, if it's your go-to, that's your script. That's what you're used to. So you have to rewrite that script and rewriting that script while completely possible is going to feel uncomfortable when you do it. Okay, so, so you just kind of have to know that going into the game. It's going to take some effort and it's going to take some work to shift your thinking. And you're going to have to be willing to give up previous stories that have existed in your head. I'll, I'll give you a for instance. I was just going to say, give us an example yeah, of rewriting that script. So one of the dominant stories that I have as an adult is that people have not been there for me when I really needed them. Okay. It's a pretty pervasive thing that eats away at confidence and eats away at my ability to connect and, and eats away at my internal optimism as well. Okay. And so it's a story born out of trauma. I, you know, I'm a, a trauma impacted adult. I, a byproduct of divorce. I, my mom was emotionally distant for her own reasons around trauma. And so truly, truly at some of the keyest, biggest events of my life that were difficult, legit, nobody was there. Okay. Um, including the birth of one of my children. Like, uh, I mean, there were just some really difficult times that I faced. And just recently I was 
talking about with my husband about how I felt about all of that. Okay. And I, he's so wise. He's so profound and so wise. And I remember him saying to me, but that's not your story anymore. And I, I literally stopped dead in my tracks and I'm like, oh my God, you're right. Like both of my adult children have never not been there for me. My husband actually in, in recent, you know, couple of decades has never not been there for me. And so that actually isn't my story anymore. And I have a handful of friends that I could call on in a dime and they would drop everything they're doing to help. So it's actually not my story. And it was such a liberating feeling to realize that that story that had bound me that was a byproduct of trauma and had bound me for so long was actually a fiction. Uh-huh. It actually wasn't true anymore. And so part of adapting mindset is realizing which stories no longer serve you, which stories are fictions now, which stories are no longer accurate. And then what can you do to rewrite that story? Part of the things I've done as a fiction storyteller, right? Yeah. Is, is bringing that storytelling into my nonfiction work, into my more clinical work and more um, school uh, success related work, school counseling work, is by lo- teaching people how to use their story and rewrite it if it doesn't serve them. Yeah. You're the author of your own fate. It's yes. really not somebody else's work, it's your work. Okay. And so if you don't like it, change it. Oh God, it just sounds so simple, doesn't it? If you don't yeah, like it, would that, would change you just, it. You have to be willing yeah. to do the work and you have to be willing to slug through the truth of your situation, whatever that may be. Right. And it is not easy to let go of storylines that we have held on to our whole life that has have served us um, for, our, for however long our life has been up to that point that have know, held some sort of service to us, Yeah, be willing to let go of that is a, it's an act of courage and right. it's an act of bravery. And there are times when that requires a level of energy that we may or may not have. Yeah. That's just, that's just true. And if that's just true, then that's just true. And we just own that. And we yeah. say, okay, I'm just not ready to go there. So what's a smaller thing I can do? And that's okay. And we have to stop shaming ourselves for that. Like, yeah. it's totally okay. If somebody listening to this, that says that sounds all well and good, but dude, like I just lost my job. We're about to lose our house. Like, you know, that's just, that's true. That's what the reality is of your situation. Okay. So shrink the sphere a little bit. What's one tiny little piece of action that you can do Yeah, that doesn't require you to give up some storyline that you're not ready to give up. Right. It's okay to to not be ready for that. And I think all of us get into this trap of saying, oh, if we're disappointed, we're just supposed to buck up. Yeah. And no, if you're disappointed, you're supposed to grieve. Like, yeah, <laughs> grieve the loss. These right. are big losses people are having right now. They're big and small. Yes. Grieve it. Grieve it however long you need to grieve it in whatever way. There's no wrong way to grieve. What you don't want to do is get stuck in that feeling, whether that's elation because something's going well or just, you know, extreme sadness because something's going badly. Feel whatever you need to feel and then take a step forward. Yes. Whatever that might mean for you. Okay, so you just touched on a couple things that I was so hoping that we could touch on because um, I was wondering about that. Um, you mentioned grief and time because is that part of it? When we're well, I, dis- think, I think that's the source of grief, right? Okay. We grieve because we are disappointed in something. We okay. grieve a loss because of the disappointment of not being able to interact with them again. We grieve because of the difference of the reality, which is the loss and the expectation, which was, I wasn't going to have to have that loss. Yeah. That was always going to be something in my life. Yeah. 
Okay. Right? That's what that is. That's what's born of grief. Part of the reason, you know, you had said there's individual disappointment and there's collective yeah. disappointment. We are living through collective disappointment on a, on a monumental scale, right? Yeah. And we are living through collective grief on a monumental scale. Yeah. And we just haven't in our generation, in the generations that exist on the planet right now, with very, very few exceptions, those people who were alive during the 1918 pandemic or from other countries where there have been some localized pandemics that have been decimating. We just haven't experienced this in this way in a very, very, very long time. And so I think it's important to realize that this is, this is grief. Grief takes time. Sometimes it takes a very long time. All of us are existing on something that is a marathon, but we have been treating it like a sprint. And so you had mentioned the word fatigue earlier. Absolutely. I would say that we have amazing amounts of fatigue. I'd say half the reason why some of the things that have been politicized have been politicized is really just the byproduct of extreme fatigue. And nobody told us this was a marathon. Yeah. So we all did what Americans do. We like pulled up our bootstraps and we prepared for the sprint and we were going to tackle this head on and we did. And then we get to the other side of it when we all thought collectively, our collective expectation is that we would get through and boom, we're done. Yeah. And yeah, that hasn't happened yet. Yeah. So we're all now like, what? Are you kidding me? Well, I'm not going to do that again. Like there was no payoff for me on that. And that's why we need to just all calm kind of take a step back and calm down and just look at the reality of our situation. What is the reality of everybody's unique situation? And then make decisions based on the reality of the situation, not on what we hope it's going to be, not on what we wish it was, but on the reality as best we know it of the situation. How can we keep ourselves and our community safe? Okay. Sorry. I'm collecting myself. I'm collectively <laughs> collecting myself as I'm thinking about what you're saying, because that was, I think I'm absorbing exactly what you said. That's exactly what we did. I thought it, it was going to be a sprint as well. Most I thought when my kids were saying like, when is this going to be over? When's it going to be over? And I'm you think, oh, flu season's over June, July, June, July, we'll be good. <laughs> that was the narrative. Yeah, yes. I can remember. Um, and then, the now we're disappointed. Exactly. <laughs> at the time, and that's what that's what this is, right? That's what all of the angst that's going around the country right now and the increase in mental health concerns, it's all a byproduct of the grief and disappointment of yeah. realizing that we're in a marathon, not a sprint. Um, when this first happened, I was uh, an educational consultant at the time, and I had a lot of clients in the schools that I was working with. And I, I do a lot of work at... Um, higher level. So at those levels where we're really providing some very specialized mental health services for kids. And I work with a lot of practitioners and I can remember telling all of them, you guys take a breath. This is a marathon. Take a breath. This is a marathon because everybody was rushing to, how do we solve problems now? How do we do it fast? How do we implement today? How do we, you know, how do we, how do we, how do we, and it was go, 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 go with nobody saying, okay, hold on. Like, did you put your oxygen mask on yourself before you're busy giving it to other people? Yeah. Did you forget that part? And we're seeing so much burnout right now that I think collectively we forgot that we need oxygen as well. Yeah. The burnout, that is, that is big. Oh my gosh. That is like, maybe, and that's my fatigue word because like, at the beginning, there was like that adrenaline rush of like, yeah. <gasps> like you're describing. Yes. And then, and now it feels like the problems are too big to be 
fixed, like we were talking about before we got started. And now, and then, so yeah, burnout, fatigue, like, oh my God. My my own um, spiritual and business coach, you know, her, her advice to anyone who will listen to her right now is just go slow. Mm. And that's my advice too. Go slow. Give yourself grace. I can remember a, a friend of mine calling who's really been struggling the last couple of days. And my advice to her was, Again, this is a marathon. Go slow. You hit you, you hit that mile when you're pretty sure you want to quit. Yes, right? that'd be mile <laughs> twenty, the wall. Marathon, mm-hmm. right? And you know if you just have to dig super, super deep. And so, yeah, yep. we got to dig really deep right now. And sometimes the only way to get through that kind of moment is to think about the next moment. That's it. Yeah. I think it's more. ironic that I'm wearing that my New York marathon goes, shirt. You can focus on the next one and so forth and so forth and so forth instead of um, constantly worrying, thinking ahead or really yeah. about the past, those things that we know, um, build anxiety. But, um, I had mentioned to you before we had started recording this, that I've really kind of been leaning deep on both my, um, journaling practice and my mindfulness yes. practice. And the reason for both of those is because they both achieve the same thing, right? They give you an opportunity to lock yourself into the present moment. And I have, I have a really good, um, protocol. There's a couple of protocols I use with kids to help anchor kids in some of this thinking. Cause you know, we've been talking in a lot of abstracts, right? Yes. This morning. And sometimes yes. for kids, especially younger kids, they need a really practical thing. And so that this idea of what do I have control over? What do I not have control over? I have a protocol to call the hula hoop protocol. Yes. I love the name. It's kid friendly, right? Let's and talk about that. It, the way it works is you just imagine yourself standing in the middle of a hula hoop and everything inside the hula hoop is under your control and everything outside of the hula hoop is not under your control. And, and you make a conscious decision to focus only on those things within your control. And so if you think about what lives in that hula hoop, the only thing that lives in there is you, your thoughts, your behaviors, your feelings. That's it. Okay. Right. That's the only thing that lives in the hula hoop. So when you're wondering, when you're feeling that sense of overwhelm because the world got really big, am I going to go to school? Am I not going to go to school? Am I going to see my friends? Am I not going to see my friends? What if somebody catches a disease? What if this? What if that? That's the moment when you say, okay, what do I have control over? What over, do I have control over whether my state or my local district chooses in class or not in class? Right. No, no. I actually have no control over that, right? I may get a survey, I may not, I can answer that, but the ultimate decision is not mine. So I actually have no control. So give yourself permission to let go of that one right now. Okay. Yeah, you're going to have to deal with it when a decision comes down. But we are probably a couple of weeks at least in most areas of the United States at any rate from knowing the answer to that question. So rather than make yourself crazy for two weeks, you can put that one on the back burner. You can give yourself permission to not worry about that one right now. Okay. Yeah. I like that for them. Well, I do, you know, what can I do as a, as a school district employee, what can I do to be as safe as possible? um, If I have to go back, that's in my control. I can, I can at least make a list of what that means for me. Yeah. Right. And then I have it and I can put it to the back burner and now I can go on with my day. Yeah. Right. I've given myself permission to move forward. And, and so those little bits of permission through that hula hoop method can be really effective. The other protocol is something that I use with anxiety management, um, moving yourself from a state of anxiety to a state of calm. Okay. And I call that ROAR. And it's an acronym that stands for Relax, Orient, Attune, Release. And it's a step, it's kind of the steps you need to take to move yourself from overwhelmed and anxious to a state of calm or even panic stricken. 
a state of calm. And so it starts with relaxing and those are doing some of those deep breathing techniques or visualization techniques to kind of relax your body. Okay. The next one is orient. And that's about learning to get yourself anchored into the present moment. Okay. Again, anxiety thinking really refers to, you know, being anchored in the past or the future, but not in the present moment. Okay. Attune means asking yourself, what do you need right now in this moment? Okay. And then release is learning how to lean into your feelings, even the big hard ones, as opposed to resisting them. And so release is all about releasing that resistance to what's true right now for you. Okay. These are fantastic. If I can back us up just for a second to time, because we had mentioned we had been talking about grieving and collectively grieving Because I think a lot of us feel like if we're disappointed and we're grieving on something, then there's this push to move on and get over it. Sometimes I feel like sometimes you don't want to get over it or do you want to give yourself three minutes or three days or three hours? Just sit in it for as long as you need to sit on it. What do you feel is the, the appropriate... Wording. So I love the question. I do think we are a get over it, pull yourself up by your bootstraps culture. Yeah. Um, that's been ingrained since, you know, mo- since our founding days, right? Since moment one. I also think it's a mistake. And I think um, it's a mistake that's been especially exacerbated by the move- positive psychology movement. Yeah. This is not to say I do not agree fully with the positive psychology movement as it's conceptualized in academia. I 100% do. I've read the tier one research. I get it. I love it. I think it's one of the best things to come out of psychology in decades, truly. That being said, like everything, when it trickles down out of academia into uh, the mainstream culture. And by positive um, psychology, you mean let's concentrate on everything that's going right, right? It's lost in translation, right? And so we have this overemphasis on positive thinking. Yeah. Not that positive thinking is wrong. Mindset is everything. What you think about matters. Like all of that's true. But not acknowledging big feelings that aren't positive is a mistake. And so when we tell kids to get over it, not only do we diminish their experience of whatever it is that's true for them right in that moment, whatever that trauma is, um, but we tell them basically that what you're feeling isn't correct. Yeah. It's not accurate. It's not correct. And it's not valid. Um, if you think of, you know, in the middle of COVID, we also have the culture wars going on right now and the, yeah. this whole um, recognition of, kind of our cultural responsiveness or lack thereof in the American culture. And when we tell people who have collective historical trauma that to get over it, to move on, that's not now, that's exactly what we're doing. We're silencing them and telling them their whole feeling process is wrong. And I just, I just think that's wrong. I think it's a mistake. I think it's um, devaluing of another human's experience. And I don't think we have any right to do that. Instead, I think sitting in it is a completely appropriate thing. I don't want to get stuck there, right? So we need to take some action. So if you're really angry or hurt or um, are coming to a recognition that maybe you've been uh, marginalizing of others or that you have been marginalized and silenced in some way, there is a grief process with that. Okay. Right? You have to you have to go through those stages, those those stages of grief that you know Ross taught taught us years and years and years ago. Those seven stages they apply, and so yeah. how long it takes is really dependent on how long it takes you to move through those that process. 
and it may be quick or it may take a really long time. In all probability, what will happen is you will have waves of processing and each wave will get deeper. And the second and third and fifth and 20th wave of different grief processes will show up when you have a new grief that you need to face. When you have a new developmental jump, if you're a child that you're going to make, or when you're hitting a different stage of development as an adult, you know, I think sometimes we forget that adults go through stages of development as well. And, and there are certain things you can predict based on those stages. So if I'm hitting midlife, it is normal and natural for me to take inventory of the first part of my life. And in that inventory process, I may relive all kinds of, of griefs and I may recognize story patterns that haven't served and make a decision to change them. Or I may get really stuck in that story, kind of victim story space um, and really struggle and might need seek some help to get me to move forward. All of those things are okay. Like there's no right and wrong way to do this. And I think we get so stuck on that, that we need to just be careful um, about forcing how we process on another person. Um, I wrote a book called The Caring Child that's all about developing empathy. And one of the things I talk about is immature empathy. And I think immature empathy is the kind of empathy that has judgments that says, you should probably stop crying right now. Like, uh. you know, or you should just move on right now. Or, you know, there's no crying in baseball or whatever. It's like, why the frick not? If I want to cry, I'm going to cry. Like, why right. is that thing? That shouldn't be so misinterpreted as an indication that I'm weak or, you know, whatever, you know. And so when I talk in that book about mature empathy, I'm talking about the kind of empathy that not only enables me to feel what you feel, but to do so in such a way that does not cause me emotional distress, but also does not judge you for your feelings and does not try to fix you because there's no recognition that what you're doing is means you're broken. See, when we try to fix people, we try to make them broken. Right. And that's the underlying message. And, uh, you know, I don't want to do that. I want, I want to demonstrate mature empathy, which enables me to walk with you through your experience, whatever that may be, and just be a container to give you space to do whatever you need to do within that, within that moment of time. Yes. And to just be there for you as a partner. So one thing that you just said, yes, I love all of this. And when you say walk with our children through this, do you think that we are walking with our children through their disappointments? Or do you think that, that most of us parents are trying to walk for them? Oh, absolutely. I think we try to walk for, and we try to, um, push them through. Yeah. <laughs> Drag yeah. them along. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let me show you how to do this. You know? Yeah. And fix them. We are, we as parents tend to fix a lot. I was guilty of that when my kids were younger. Um, and it, it really took, I mean, I knew what I should, should be doing, right. As yeah. a psychologist, but doing that yourself with your own children is sometimes a different deal. Um, but I have incredibly wise children who are very, very good at a very young age at telling mama when she wasn't doing what they needed, which I'm thankful for. Yeah. Um, they had a voice at a young, <laughs> they developed that voice young. And it was through my children that I could really begin to see the ways in which I wasn't serving them. Yeah. The ways in which that what I was doing actually made them feel broken when they didn't necessarily feel broken before. How how did they let you know? Because I wonder. Oh, they just straight up told me. That's, they did. That's kind of been the rule in our house. Yeah. So they'd say things like, "Mom, you're making me feel worse," or "Mom, ah. you're making me feel broken," or okay. "What? You mean I'm broken now? Like I didn't think I was broken. I was just upset." Like, okay. You know? 
And so it's, you know, being willing to own that, that as a parent, I said something that got interpreted that way Mm -hmm. was really good. Like that was really important for me as a parent. But again, it goes back to that willingness to sit in our discomfort of the truth of what we're doing Mm -hmm. and not take it. Like I had to get to a headspace. I had to have enough enough personal um, mental health and mental wellness that I could take the feedback without it being an indictment of me as a human. Mm. And so that's, that's, I mean, in our own household, that's what we're, we've been about a lot is how do you take feedback without interpreting it as an indictment of your humanity? Mm. And that's hard. There's nothing easy about that. Right. Right. Some days I'm personally, as a parent, some days I'm great at it, and some days I am not so good at it. It's a practice. We're all trying again. Absolutely. But if we can get past the shame and guilt of it all, right, because those emotions come into play as well. Right. And again, we can just sit in, maybe we have disappointment in our parenting. Yeah. Maybe that's one of the stories we have to look at. I didn't want to repeat certain things that I had, um, stories I grew up with. I didn't want to repeat those, but dang, look, shoot. I just heard my mother coming out of my voice. I oh, just boy. It, right? Oh, boy. Like that's, that's a classic disappointment that most moms feel. Right. And it's, it's around learning to just accept that as this isn't bad. This is just, look, you just became aware of it. And look how young you are as a parent or young your children were when you became aware. Yes. There's, you know, you, ha- you have all the time in the world then to shift if that's what you want to do. Yes. I think it's interesting, too, if your kids are feeling disappointment, then picturing yourself feeling disappointment as a kid and like, yeah, you're like, Oh God, I remember that. And then you don't want your kid to feel that disappointment and you just want to shield them from that. And it just becomes this whole thing of like, Oh, Oh. you hit it right on the head. Yeah. I had that actually even recently, like uh, one of my kids was going through something and she was just experiencing a lot of pain. And I can remember it was, you know, in the evening and I can remember the next morning, have a, having a conversation with my husband and just saying, I was a little teary-eyed and I'm like, I just wish I could save her from this feeling, but I know that's yeah. not appropriate and I can't anyways, but yeah, you know, I just want to just be there for her, but I feel so helpless when all I'm doing is just giving her space to just feel. Yeah. And that's a miss. That's a miss also. Right. Because yeah. you're actually not, you're, you're, that's the kindest thing you can do for another human yeah. is give the space and connection available so they can feel whatever they need to feel when they need to feel it instead of having to process it out of context later on. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's an amazing gift yeah. that you give. Because the grit and the resilience that will come with it. Right. Yeah, Absolutely. Do you well, think, what do we script? Right. When we, when we experience disappointment and loss and we're allowed to grieve it, and the world doesn't stop spinning on its axis, and everything we know doesn't fully blow up. Like it, there, there may be change, but it's not nearly what you know in our catastrophic thinking we may have thought it would be. Then we develop the script that it's okay to grieve. Yeah, it's okay to feel loss. It's yeah. okay to feel these things. That's part of the quintessential human experience, and it's not bad. Yeah, we'll survive. We will Absolutely. survive. There is a reason for that saying. Things may be different. God, um, God bless J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter, man. There's a scene (laughs) um, with with one of the characters when, you know, she's bullied all the time at the school and she talks about how people like to hide all of her things. And her mom had taught her that, you know, you'll always get your things back, just not necessarily in the way you expected. 
And I'm like, Pearl of Wisdom, right there, man. Classic Pearl of Wisdom delivered in such a beautiful way that most people would miss it if they weren't paying a little bit closer attention to the text, but it still gets in there. It gets in there. That is, you'll get nope. your stuff back. It just not <laughs> being the way you expected. Just not as you might have expected. Mm-hmm. I'm going to remember that one for today. The one thing that I'm thinking about still, too, is... I'm thinking through my life of disappointments that I've had, but most of them really have been individual disappointments. Do you think like just, and this is kind of an off the wall question, but because this is so collective that this generation is experiencing, what effect do you think that will have on this generation? Well, I think every generation has their trauma collectively. And if you really look at each generation, each generation has some major traumatic event, whether it's nationally or worldwide, that kind of defines the generation. True, yeah. For for the generations of children, which we actually have two generations um, of children right now, Alpha and Generation Z, you know, they have this particular traumatic event that will forever define um, their generation. Some would argue millennials are, have that same defining moment. Um, Gen Xers have a couple of different things that could be considered defining moments. And they definitely shape behavior. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. It definitely shapes how people show up, what people value, how people parent in the future, all of those things. So so yeah, there's an impact. Um, and and there's, there'll be an impact too on those individual um, disappointments that happen and how we reconcile those and whether those serve to enhance our resilience or serve to detract from our resilience. I think all of that um, has collective, collectively shapes who we are. The beauty is we know more than ever from science that our brain is constantly morphing, changing, and, and becoming better versions of itself. And so, you know, what we do with both this global and collective disappointment, as well as these individual disappointments. There's all kinds of things we can do as parents for our kids that we can do as individuals for ourselves um, that can really strengthen um, how, how we all move through this traumatic event or other traumatic events we may be experiencing. What would you have us do? Like, I don't I'm going to say three things. Can you think of three things that you would have us do heading back into the like, or just heading into over the next six months to weather through this fatigue we're in. Focus on safety. Okay. Focus on safety, both physical and psychological and focus on internalized safety. So what do you need as an individual to feel safe on the planet? What do your children need as individuals to feel safe on the planet? And how best can I serve that if I'm a parent? If I'm encountering others, if I'm in a service industry that serves others in some way, what do I need to feel safe and what do my my customers or whomever I'm working with need to feel safe? So safety. Number two would be positive connections. So yes, a lot of us are still some version of staying home and staying safe, right? In various degrees. And so how do we continue with positive connections when how we used to achieve that is no longer optimal. Right. And so how can we adapt and still get that need met? You know, there's a, there's a million ways we could do that. And I, I challenge everyone who thinks we can't on any topic to look at 
okay, but what if we could, and just ask that question, but what if we could, and see, see if you can't free up your brain to innovate. The brain is amazing, and, can, and we as humans have the capacity to innovate in ways that are just off the charts. We just forget sometimes, and so safety, um, connection, and adaptability, I would put those two things together, okay. and then I would, I think it's really around our mindset. Okay, yeah. and Christine, in terms of like having these conversations with our families, so like making sure, so say with safety and internalized safety with our children, what sort of conversation, how do you see that conversation going with your children? Like saying, I would like, start hey. with an easy question. What, okay. does, what does it mean to feel safe? Okay. And just ask every member of the family that. There is any child, even super, super young kids, can describe something that safety means to them. Okay. And then how can you, as an individual human, feel safe? Okay. So if, if, if safety to you means having mom and dad close by, having, um, having the capacity capacity to talk to your friends, like whatever it may mean, right? Eating an ice cream at night because it's okay. hot, like whatever. Yeah. Whatever safety means to you. Yeah. And the follow-up question is, how can you as an individual ensure that you have that? Okay. What would you need? Okay, good. Ensure that you have that. And so that to me, if, if we could just do that. And then the other thing is if we could, when our kids are coming to us with their shoulda, woulda, coulda blues, or our friend, or ourselves, when we find ourselves in that mode of thinking, if we could, if we could get into the habit of asking whoever is coming to us the question of what do you need right now? Yeah. What do you need? Yeah. Don't presume to know. Don't fill in that blank for them. The more, especially our younger children, the more that they could kind of build the script in their mind that they are, they can create safety in their brain even if it's just a little tiny spot of safety. I mean, we have story after story after story of people who have survived literally horrific things, like devastatingly horrific events, world events, um, cataclysmic trauma, um, stuff that would take out most humans, like truly, and yet they've survived it and survived it well. What we learn when we read those biographies and, and do those interviews is that they had a little spot deep inside where they could find safety. And so why can't we all build that? Of course okay. we can. And so that's, that's what I would focus on. Okay. I, and so could, I think that that's important to keep thinking of because when so often when we think safety, I'm, and when you're saying that I'm thinking physical safety, mm -hmm. but it's so much deeper than that. Yeah. yeah it's psycho it's, psychological safety is everything because we can be physically safe and still be terrified. Yeah. But when we are psychologically safe when, and, we, and we know where that still um, quiet spot is inside where we can find it and we have a, a routine of seeking it, mm -hmm. um, then when we become terrified, I'm not going to say, like I, I have definitely a lot of psychological safety. Uh, that being said, that doesn't mean I don't get overwhelmed and it doesn't mean I don't get straight up terrified. I have moments of straight up, terror mm -hmm. uh, with what's going on in the world right now. Absolutely. But when that occurs, rather than be overwhelmed for a long period of time, I am, have cultivated the practice of saying, okay, I'm terrified right now. That's like an alarm clock telling me that I am not seeking my safe spot 
regularly. So what do I need to do to strengthen that ability to get into my safe spot? Yes. And it doesn't mean living in a bubble and, you know, ignoring what's true in the world. Right. Despite what's true in the world, I'm still going to find a spot of peace. Right. Right. It almost, is it a little bit like um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs or no? Like, is it knowing that like. Um, Yes, but I would say it's more related to, there's a, there's a brand new book out by Scott Barry Kaufman, fantastic um, positive psychologist and friend. Um, he wrote a book called Transcend, and that book okay. takes Maslow's hierarchy of needs and updates it. Okay. And it updates it based on unpublished writings of Maslow. He has been a researcher of Maslow for years, and he really talks about self-actualization ah. as being something that we don't talk about nearly enough and something that is so much more fundamental to um, to us feeling fulfilled in our lives than we ever realized. So I encourage people to really kind of check out his work. Um, He does some, he's done some podcasts on it. You can probably just Google it and find them. Okay. Uh, I have the book. The book's a work of art. Um, Yeah. Okay. I want to check that out. It just, it draws me there because I just think like internally, if we, it's like the, what they say about kids, right. From the zero to two, like if they yeah. feel safe and loved and safe and loved and safe and love, it just sets them up so well. Absolutely. And it's because you're developing that internalized trust, Yes. both internal and external. Right. Yes. And that's part of the reason why when we look at trauma, trauma that occurs in the zero to nine years can have a more devastating impact than trauma that happens when you're 50. Um, yeah, that's why. Yeah. So and not to say, I don't mean to say that for kids now that like, oh no, you know, we can't do anything for them. But for this situation where we're at right now, there's so much that we can do. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's healthy. It's that, that goes back to that mindset and optimism piece that we started off with. Yes. Right? When you can stop and decide, okay, what's one thing I can do? When I got those 300 rejections, right? Yes. And I wanted to quit and it's happened more than once. The question becomes, what's one action I can take today that moves me in the direction of the dream? Yeah. And I still have big, huge, gigantic Walter Mitty fantasies over where I want um, my life as an artist to go before I leave this planet. Yeah. You know? And so it's really just a matter of what's one step in that direction I can take today. What's one step I can take next? The little baby steps. There was something else that you said, and I was glad you brought it up because I know we're talking about disappointment and we started out talking about COVID, Mm -hmm. but in the midst of the, as you said, the cultural wars, I think that disappointment is a piece of that for a huge part of our population. Absolutely. And so to not talk about that, I I don't want to have that be a miss for any of our listeners. And that's a healing conversation that that needs to happen, I think, for so many people. And so for anyone that's out there, maybe that's missing out on healing conversations that aren't occurring and maybe is is perhaps experiencing disappointments because those conversations aren't taking place, do you have advice for them on maybe how to broach conversations okay, or how to, so- bro- to, att- to a- just kind of, yeah, get there. 
Yeah. So, so gosh knows that's a podcast or many in and of itself, right? Yes. I mean, <laughs> yes. And I know I just threw planet. a ton at you. <laughs> that's okay. There is a truth on this planet. The truth on this planet is that our black, brown, indigenous, and other peoples of color have had a different life experience than our Eurocentric white people. Yeah. Period. Um, that's just a truth. And, and we can accept or deny it till the cows come home, but it doesn't change the reality of our black, brown, indigenous, and people of color. Yeah. And so if we want to move to a state of healing, and if we want to become anti-racist, not just not racist, but anti-racist, yeah. then we need to fully understand their story. And there's a lot of ways we can do that. We can look at, um, there's a TED Talk called The Danger of a Single Story that is brilliant, um, we can start with that. We can start, we can look at, um, several of uh, Ted talks out there that are around, what does it mean to kind of grow up as somebody with a different version of America or a different version of, of world events? Um, because their history is different than the history we have been taught in school. Um, and what does that mean? And, and what is the daily disappointment that they live with? You know, I, I challenge every a person who is kind of white, Eurocentric, people who look like me, to to look at all the pain and frustration and anger and, and whatever's disappointments that you're feeling right now, and then put that within the life of somebody who has been traditionally marginalized their whole life. Somebody who has to, as a parent, teach their children how to behave when you get pulled over um, for fear that you might be shot otherwise. Like, that's not a reality. I didn't have to teach my children how to behave if they got pulled over with a police officer. That was never a conversation we had to have. But there are huge swashes of, of people within our collective society for whom that's true. Like, they've had to have multiple conversations like these through, uh, of all different kinds. And and that's just not a reality I've had. And so how how dare I not recognize that that's a that makes for a big difference. It makes for a difference in opportunity. It makes for a difference in life experience. It makes for a difference in story. And again, because I'm a storyteller first and foremost, and an artist, I, I want to talk to those people. Be curious. Yeah. Have a conversation. You don't have to. At the end of the day, there's nothing in the world that says we all have to agree. We are multifaceted. We are going to come to different conclusions based on different reasons. And that's part of what makes us so amazing. But by gosh, listen, by gosh, be willing to have a conversation yeah. and educate yourself. You know, if you are someone who looks like me, go read authors that don't look like me. Right. Okay. That, whose life experience is different. There are some brilliant, most stunning pieces of work out there if you want to know what it's like to grow up black brown indigenous or a person of color in the united states there is a ton of stuff you could read to find out and okay. be willing to see the humanity in it and imagine if that were your life and then come back and say something doesn't does or doesn't exist that the disappointment that I feel or the historical trauma that's there is or isn't real. Like I, I defy anybody to really get deep on this stuff and then try to say that that stuff's not real. Like that's not where you're going to land. But again, just like changing your own um, mindset for your own life on your own disappointments takes work and it takes courage and it takes a willingness to sit in discomfort. The same is doubly true if you're trying to understand a life that's vastly different from your own and a story that's vastly different from your own. And so mistakes are going to be made on all sides of this conversation. People are going to stumble into weird spaces on all sides of this conversation. And one of the unfortunate things that is also true side by side by this real call to kind of open our eyes and, and look at 
change our worldview on some things. There is also what's called a cancel culture, which is make one mistake and you're out. And that's alive and well too. And we see it over and over and over by that constant need to kind of cancel people out and cancel out particularly um, white people who are trying to figure this stuff out and making horrible mistakes with it over and over and over again. There's a strong cancel culture for that of, of just marginalizing what they're saying as well. And I don't think that's a solution either. Eek. And so yeah. everybody needs to just take a collective breath, yeah. realize that we are all in a state of trauma it is no mistake to me whatsoever that this is when all of this hit. This isn't when all of this occurred. This has been going on forever right. um, in our in the history of, of the United States. But now is the time when people are listening because we are in a very emotionally vulnerable state now, which tends to make us more, and we're all feeling extreme discomfort right now right. because of COVID, which Raw. tends to make us more willing to listen. So I don't think it's any mistake at all that this co this is a collective time when a whole bunch of things are hitting at once. Yeah. And so we're having this huge change and shift in what it means to be human and what the human experience is, in particular what the human experience is in the United States. And I think it's time. I think our young people, if, if there's one thing I can really say about Gen Z and about Gen Alpha is that they are pushing this charge and leading this charge and hats off to him. What an incredible act of bravery right, um, yeah. to go there and, and to start these conversations in a, during a really scary time. And it is scary yeah. and it's hard and it takes work on everybody's part. But I think certainly my friends who are black, brown, indigenous and pe other peoples of color, like they, they've been wonderful for me and, and, and good sounding boards where I can have safe conversations and stumble and make mistakes and have them say, okay, I mean, go read this, Christine. <laughs> Please go read this and then come have a conversation with me. And I love that. Like, thank goodness for that. Yeah. Because then that's how I become, um, that's how I make sure I am not listening to a single story. Gotcha. Thank you. Thank you for that input. Okay. Is there anything that you would like to include that you think that we need, that we have not covered? I think I think this has been a very robust conversation and hopefully a benefit to people. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I, I one thought did come to mind just yes. kind of as an ending comment. Yeah. I think right now, more than ever, we need to get really good at showing grace. Okay. It doesn't mean accepting abusive behavior. By no, no means does it mean that. But it does mean showing grace for one another and realizing that every human on the planet is a work in progress. Yes. And we're all doing the best we can. And we're all going to deal with a ton of di disappointment. And um, we're all trying to figure out what to do with feelings of shame and guilt. And if we can recognize that there is more on this planet that unites us than divides us, there really, really is, despite much evidence to the contrary at the moment. I think that's where we need to ultimately land. That doesn't mean discount anybody's story, truth, reality, historical trauma, whatever. It doesn't mean accepting abusive behavior. We never should. Um, it absolutely means having good boundaries, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, if we can show each other some grace and um, realize that there's more that unites us than divides us and that it's only together that we're going to get through this moment in history, um, I think we'll all fare better. Yes, we will go on and flourish. I couldn't agree with you more. And if we all woke up and said that every day, it would be so right? much simpler. What can I do to take a step forward in a positive way and help myself and someone else flourish today? 
Words that would to be a great morning mantra. Words to live by, Christine Fonseca. Yeah. Words to live <laughs> by. Thank you so much. Thank you. What a fun conversation. I appreciate it. I miss you. Thank you for stopping by. Hopefully I get to talk to you soon. Be safe and well down there. Our podcast today was brought to us by Let's All Flourish, a health and wellness company impacting wellness for families around the world. Our topic today on disappointment touches on a lot of different things, anxiety, depression, and basic overall wellness for everyone. If you're interested in scheduling a virtual workshop for your employee group, for your church group, for a sports team that you're working with, reach out, contact us at letsallflourish at gmail.com. So many great nuggets we got from Christine Fonseca today on just the state of all of us. And I always like to share, kind of bundle them together at the end. And I will include them in show notes as well. Um, But starting us off, Christine suggested that having an optimistic mindset is one of the most key, I'm going to call it ingredients, that we can all have to weather through this state of disappointment that we may or may not be in. And is optimistic mindset a learned skill or isn't it? It absolutely can be a learned skill. And there are a variety of ways that we can make this a habit for ourselves And just a really simple way that you can make it a habit for yourself might be getting up every morning and even before your feet hit the floor, thinking of happy thoughts or putting a gratitude practice into play. Or maybe then when you swing your feet out of bed and you have a journal available to you to the side of your bed and journaling before you get out of bed or writing down some affirmations about your day, or if your brain isn't thinking quite yet and you need to go get your teeth brushed and shuffle in and have some coffee and then you sit down and take care of these items. Whatever works for you, but these might be some ways to get you into that optimistic mindset. Number two, we're not alone. And not to be taking anything that's happening personal right now. So if we're experiencing individual disappointments or collective disappointments, looking to the examples of others, there are other people going through disappointments as well. And number three, it is not going to last forever. We're going to get through everything that we're going through. Number four, rewriting our scripts. Looking at the stories that are happening and what are accurate what's not accurate, what serves you, and what doesn't serve you any longer. I love this one in particular because when we talk with Jill Weston a couple episodes from now, we will talk about what serves us and what doesn't serve us and how Yoga Nidra can help us unpack that out of our suitcase and get rid of it. So thank you for this one as well, Christine. Number five, In terms of allowing ourselves to grieve, if we are in disappointment, looking at disappointment as grief, make no mistake that that's where we're at. 
we are all in a state of grief, whether it's for our individual disappointments or the collective disappointments, allowing ourselves to grieve, going through the stages of grief, maybe going back into the stages of grief, knowing that there are seven or eight stages, and be in them for as long as you need to be in them, or allowing your people, whoever those people are around you, to be in those stages of grief as well. Number six, the hula hoop protocol. Christine had a great hula hoop protocol that she likes to use with children when she's working with them in imagining a hula hoop around you and either having it as big or as little as you need that to be and imagining that you can control whatever is within your hula hoop space and swinging that hula hoop around in Whatever does not fit within that hula hoop space is what you cannot control, and that is what you let go of. What a great visualization that is, right? And that works for adults too, but super good visualization for children. And if you need to get an actual physical hula hoop for them, get them a physical hula hoop. Number seven, in terms of anxiety management for, because we're all, in that when we're dealing with disappointment. She uses an acronym ROAR, R-O-A-R. R stands for relax, and with relax, using breathing and visualization. O is orienting yourself, so using an anchoring, something to anchor yourself down. Again, kind of visualization, right? Attune. Thinking, what do you need right now? And then release, leaning into your needs. What is it that you are going to need to let go of right now? So roar. And I will put all of this in show notes, by the way. And then finally, number eight, when I was asking her, okay, what is it that we could work with our kids right now in terms of disappointment and looking into the future and things are so uncertain, what should we, do, we be doing with our kids? And she was like, absolutely, number one, making sure that they feel safe, not just physically safe, psychologically safe. And how do we do that? We are talking to them about what do they need. Dialogue. Every single one of the guests that we have talked to so far, everything, there's been a common theme, right? Everything is coming back to dialogue, dialogue, dialogue with our kids, asking them what it is that they need for their safety. And that's what she meant by internalized safety. And then positive connections and adaptability. So looking for positive connections. What do you need for positive connections? Even when you feel like you don't have any, really sitting down and thinking about it. And I know for a fact, Christine is really, really a pro journaling person. So if you think that you can't find positive connections, sitting down with your journal and letting your brain flow and finding some. And adaptability in terms of, and I'm pausing here thinking, I know a lot of us out there don't feel like we're very adaptable, but boy, in these times, we don't all have much choice. So getting really flexible because if 
there's nothing going on right now but uncertainty. So those were Christine's nuggets that I took from today. She also had some really good book ideas. Scott Barry Kaufman wrote the book Transcend. That was one of the books that she recommended, and I will put that in show notes as well. A big thank you to Christine Fonseca. Thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Join us next week as we continue this conversation on disappointment with McKinley Stoller, who will give us her perspective on disappointment through her eyes as a teenager and a college freshman whose freshman year was cut short by COVID. Can't wait to talk to McKinley.